Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, professor of history at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. For 50 years, the U.S. Army War College's Eisenhower Series College Program, or ESCP, has been designed to encourage dialogue on national security and other policy issues between War College students and the broader public. In pursuit of that dialogue, War College students have traveled across the country speaking to college classes, voluntary organizations, think tanks, and other public forums. In our age of corona and social distancing, the ESCP has unfortunately had to scale back the travels of our students. Here at A Better Peace, however, we aim to pick up the slack by giving Eisenhower program participants a chance to share their expertise and insights. Today's topic is the internal dimension of strategy. The recently deceased scholar Colin Gray identified multiple dimensions within which strategy is developed to give students and practitioners a sense of the complex web of circumstances that place limits on abstract notions of strategy. These can include cultural, social, and political factors, and all of those outside the usual military conceptions of strategy. Our guests today to deal with this internal dimension of strategy include three members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2021. Lieutenant Colonel Rena Henderson-Alalima is an engineer with the Missouri National Guard, which she joined in 2013 following 11 years of service in the U.S. Army. She has deployed to Afghanistan and Korea, graduated from West Point with a degree in civil engineering, and holds a master's degree in engineering management. Before attending the Army War College, Lieutenant Colonel Henderson Alalima commanded the 7th Weapons of Mass Destruction Civil Support Team. Colonel Jeff Munn is an Army officer with 21 years of active service. He was commissioned from the Reserve Officer Training Corps at Florida Southern College in 1999 and served in various command and staff positions in the United States and Germany. He served in the Pentagon, twice on the Joint and Army staffs, managing equipment programs, and defense budgeting processes. Colonel Munn has multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan and served in Bosnia as well. He holds a Master's in Policy Management from Georgetown University and a Master of Arts in Security Studies from Kansas State University. And our third guest, Lieutenant Colonel Nicholas Plutz, is a U.S. Army Black Hawk helicopter pilot who has served in a variety of positions in the United States and overseas, including as a plans and policy officer for NATO Rapid Deployment Corps Spain. His most recent position was as an assault helicopter battalion commander in the 101st Airborne Division Air Assault. Lieutenant Colonel Plutz also has extensive deployment experience to both Afghanistan and Iraq. He holds a Bachelor of Science in International Relations from the United States Military Academy and a Master of Arts in National Security Affairs from the Naval Postgraduate School. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. Thanks for having us here, Ron. You bet. So I want to give each of you, in the normal course of things, uh, a uh, when Eisenhower students go to a public forum, each gives a 
uh, a speech on a particular topic. We're going to give brief versions of those speeches today. And so I'm going to go with you in order of how I introduced you. So I would like to ask Rena to go first. Okay, so good afternoon and thank you for inviting me for the opportunity to discuss climate change and national security. And I find it pretty fascinating and interesting to be able to discuss these two topics simultaneously because not long ago, climate change as a national security threat was rarely discussed in the same sentence. But more recently, and especially with the new administration, more emphasis is being placed on climate change as a top threat to our national security. Climate change has the potential to tremendously affect global stability, military readiness, our need to respond to humanitarian crises, and it also brings a potential of great power conflict. And just to quickly define climate change, climate change is a long-term change in average weather patterns. The general impacts of climate change include rising sea levels, rising temperature, sinking glaciers, thawing permafrost, and it can also mean more intense and frequent weather events such as droughts, floods, hurricanes, and heat waves. So now let's talk about that climate national security connection. How does climate change create a national security threat? First, climate change, it heightens and intensifies social and political instability in vulnerable and contested regions that our adversaries of the U.S. can exploit to further their interests. The impact of that increased instability is our increased need to engage militarily in order to protect our interests overseas. This is particularly concerning in regions such as the Arctic. The warming Arctic brings increased competition, military presence from our state adversaries, particularly the People's Republic of China and the Russian Federation, as they seek to control strategically important territory and resources. Furthermore, instability poses a national security threat because extremists and terrorist organizations, they turn these unstable regions into breeding grounds for their terrorist movements. And these terrorist movements, they have the potential to target democracies and Western ideas. Another impact of climate change to national security is climate change poses a direct threat to military installations. As a power generating and a power projection platform, the impact of non-resilient military installations is a decreased ability for the military to maintain combat readiness, and it's also a decreased ability to project power globally. Lastly, climate change increases the intensity of the frequency of natural disasters, which impacts our need to conduct more defense support of civil authority and humanitarian missions, uh, which places strains in military limits our ability and our capability to respond globally and domestically. The takeaway is the deteriorating climate, it's causing a, the U.S. a significant security concern from glowing instability to the potential of great power conflict to a decline in force readiness. And it's just generally impacting our ability to protect American national interests. But there's good news. Although the connection between climate change and national security did not always receive much attention and prioritization, there's growing acknowledgement within the military of the need to prepare for and respond to climate change in order to protect our national interests. Thank you. Thank you, Rena. We'll come back to you for, uh, for questions in a bit, but first I want to go to Jeff Munn. 
Yeah, thank you, Ron, for allowing me to participate in this podcast. Following up on Reina's comments about climate change and how it impacts national security, it's a it's a relevant point for where I'm going with my discussion on how the senior leaders discuss and make difficult decisions on our resourcing. Strategy requires a means or resources to achieve its ends. At the War College, we discuss the difficult decisions senior leaders make to balance resources necessary to maintain readiness, which is our ability to fight tonight, invest in modernization efforts or the tools and equipment to deter or fight tomorrow's wars, and adjustments to force structure requirements or the size and organization of our military, all within the budget constraints. And after two decades of war focused on counterinsurgency operations, our military is in the early stages of transitioning to compete and fight in an era of great power competition. Over the last few years, the department has applied resources towards improving readiness in the short term and paid for it with reductions in force structure and deferring modernization investments. The result was a marked improvement in readiness over the last few years with resources applied to unit training, equipment maintenance, and soldier wellness. Now we're shifting focus to modernizing the force. There are several initiatives in the Army underway uh, to achieve this effort. For example, in 2018, the Army established a four-star headquarters, the Army Futures Command, based out of Austin, Texas. It has the mission of establishing future warfighting concepts, identifying capabilities needed to win tomorrow's wars, and working with industry and academia to realize those capabilities into tools and equipment for our objective force. There are several equipment programs in various stages of development in the science technology realm, and our senior leaders have the responsibility of deciding where to invest and where to accept risk. The third lever in our defense management processes is is force structure. This describes how the military organizes personnel, weapon systems, and equipment to execute operations to achieve defense strategy objectives. Changes to force structure within a service may derive from changes to defense strategies following war or conflict, such as what we saw in the downsizing after World War II and the Gulf War. Or structure changes may also come about from changes to our operating concepts, such as the new multi-domain operational concept for 2028. Going forward, our leaders face difficult decisions on the size of the force needed to achieve defense strategy objectives, the amount of resources to apply to legacy equipment, and whether to sustain, increase, or decrease modernization investments that will soon be ready to incorporate into our objective force. The challenges of competing Domestic priorities, such as COVID-19 expenditures, demands on infrastructure, education, health and welfare, constricting federal budgets, climate change, as discussed by Rena, influences from a variety of stakeholders in the military-industrial complex, and those external threats identified in our various strategic and policy documents all contribute to the challenges of balancing requirements within this budget. Thank you, and look forward to further discussion. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate that. Very nice job. Uh, Nick. I echo the sentiments of both uh, Jeff and Rena in uh, having me on today, so I appreciate it here. And so, uh, you know, when we first started here at the War College, the uh, CJCS conducted a presentation. He challenged us to really think deeply about the future of warfare and being an aviation officer who's uh, seen the development and benefit of technology, as well as a self-declared early adopter of tech, although I think my teenage son would disagree. <laughs> I wanted to really kind of look at uh, the future of autonomous weapons. And I thought that really the, the recent technological advancements to include uh, artificial intelligence have once again kind of brought the future of autonomous weapons to the forefront of, of debate. 
And I think this debate is oftentimes dominated by comparisons of pop culture icons. And so when I when I just said autonomous weapons, what what did what came to your mind? You know, were you thinking R two D two or BB eight from the uh, Star Wars series? You know, these are helpful droids that we tend to think of in positive light. Or were you immediately brought about uh, with images of evil, you know, human hunting sentinels from the Matrix or the Terminator? And I think these simple names, we start to assign moral agency uh, to inanimate objects. And then you start to form narratives that certainly have emotional context to them. Instead, I I wanted to propose and have conversations uh, across the country here and reframe people's reference and look at the near future of autonomous weapons instead as a teaming between uh, man and machine and thinking a little bit more along the lines of something like Iron Man, to use another pop reference, where you know a human maintains that moral agency through a machine that exercises autonomy at a variety of levels to enhance overall capabilities. And I thought this framing uh, you know, more closely resembled the near-term Department of Defense procurement efforts which I actually believe uh, will enhance our ability to meet international humanitarian law into the future. And although I certainly agree with uh, the debate that um, future limitations on development of autonomous weapons may be prudent, some of the current efforts for an outright ban on the weapons, I believe right now, are premature. And I think because too much of the debate is actually focused on narrow definitions and environments. the real debate and discussion is on the level of freedom we're willing to give to an autonomous system and trying to define where's the line between a human being on and out of the loop and the loop referring to a decision cycle for a machine to make autonomously autonomously. And so how do you do, how do you define it? Is it time? Is it space? Is it level of control? And then how does the environment also affect the autonomy that you're willing to grant to to an inanimate object. Uh, You know, the sea, the air, information, all these different domains are certainly not the same and they shouldn't be regulated as such. And so I I think as we look at the future and the possibilities of leveraging technology to better inform human decision-making, we need to expand this conversation outside a default to an outright ban and really kind of expand it outside of our pop culture references. And I think we should desire and be interacting across a wide ranging group of of interest groups, if you will, and have a conversation on what components of combat are truly human and cannot be delegated. All right. Well, thank you, Nick. And uh, as a uh, as a comment on your early adoption of uh, of technology, I have to say, because I'm able to see a video, which our viewers or listeners are not, as you have a very cool microphone there for your recording as well. So that uh, clearly you put some effort into your tech. I uh, I, I value that. I want to a bunch of questions come to mind based on what you all said. And I want to start actually with you, Nick, because of something in particular that you pointed out, and that is that the decision about whether or not to use a tool much like decisions about strategy, are not shaped purely by uh, practical considerations, right? Does it do what we want it to do? Any decision is fraught with or hedged around with uh, pre-existing moral or cultural or social assumptions, right? So people are nervous about AI because, you know, I'm I'm, uh, not ashamed to admit that whenever we talk about AI, I always think of Arnold Schwarzenegger um, and the Terminator. I just, that's the first place I go, but that's, but that's just me. I like the fact that you brought up R2D2 and BB-8, but how do you, how do you see 
uh, let's say, uh, as a as an as an army officer, how do you see the military as making a case for the strategic use of particular technology, or make a case for it in a way that can be uh, sensitive to the existence of these uh, pre-existing factors that are sort of external, um, while also uh, being true to the uh, strategic argument, say this is necessary, this is useful for for these reasons, um, while but but respecting those concerns that people might bring to it. Yeah, I think that's a, a very valid question, and I think through it probably in in three different ways, I guess. And the first one is, I think the case starts off as being purely pragmatic, mm-hmm. and it's pragmatic because right now we're seeing. Uh, the use, or I should say, the development and implementation of autonomous weapons across the globe by a variety of different actors, mainly states, although uh, certainly as this technology um, advances, it can can proliferate beyond just states and go to non-state actors. But if we look at those states that we're most likely in competition with right now, uh, they are rapidly developing the capabilities to leverage autonomous weapons on the battlefield. Mm. And I think we would be at a disadvantage if we don't also think through how we're going to counter uh, that weapon system. And although there may be ways that are not purely autonomous to counter, uh, I tend to think you don't necessarily want to restrict yourself in developing something, i.e. an autonomous weapon, to counter somebody else's autonomous weapon. So one is is pragmatic. I think there is a need that's going to get driven that way. Uh, The second one is really talking about what kind of limitations and commitment the U.S. government is willing to place on the development of autonomous weapons. And I think we've seen uh, both the vice chief of staff, excuse me, a vice chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, had stated in in an earlier uh, conversation how he did not want to see at least some level of human judgment over the, the leverage of autonomous weapons in the future, whether or not that's on or in the loop, right? That's that's a difficult uh, discussion to have because it's somewhere there, but at least some sort of control is something that we've even seen our most senior military leaders talk about. And I believe even General Murray uh, recently talked about it. He's the U.S. Army's commander of, uh, of Futures Command. So you're seeing the senior leaders talk about this, this requirement to have limitations and place constraints. And I think how we talk about and structure that may also allow people to allow it to go forward. And the third one is really probably just bringing up uh, you know, technology that, that we're seeing in our daily lives and allowing to see how well it works or fails to work. Uh, you know, think think through what are you comfortable with, Ron? You know, you're, you're thinking the Terminator. Well, I also think, well, is a, is a toaster autonomous <laughs> in some regards, right? At what, one point, it probably would have thought of it as not, right? I mean, it's a very simple machine, but at the end of the day, you push the button and the toaster makes all the decisions on what your toast looks like when it comes up and it's not really that dangerous. True. Um, and that goes all the way up to things like, self-driving cars, which are becoming more and more prevalent on the roads today. So, you know, as you think through what is autonomy and and what are you comfortable with, I think as long as we leverage things like the pragmatism, putting in, you know, set commitments and also leveraging what we're comfortable with as a society, uh, I think you can actually push the case a little bit farther. Excellent response, Nick. I got to say that, you know, so many of these discussions about technology, people are nervous about technology, either because they're afraid of the people who are going to be programming the technology, or they're afraid that the technology is going to realize how imperfect the human beings are. Um, uh, I, I recommend I recommend an old classic in this field, the the film The Forbin Project about Colossus, uh, which was a computer designed to take over the nuclear systems. Before Skynet, there was Colossus. But I'll, we'll come back to that in a second. I want to go to Rena 
uh, because the, of a, a variation on the question that I asked Nick is uh, when you talk about climate change as a as a national security problem, uh, once again, this is a topic that you know one can approach it at a purely pragmatic level, but it is very politically fraught within the United States. I would I would venture to say within the members of the services within Congress, and how can or should uh, military leaders, strategic leaders, how can or should they take uh, climate change into account as a strategic national security challenge um, while managing the political pushback that they will get for doing so. Skepticism and climate change go hand in hand, uh, almost to the fact that in 2016, we had members of Congress saying that, hey, the military and the intelligence security the community, they need to focus on ISIS and not climate change. So what we had was an environment that just really did not pay much attention to climate change. So what the military does to combat that in a sense is we focus on the threat of climate change aside from the political issue of climate change. What we have to do is we have to look at all the threats that face America and our military and we say, hey, whether or not you want to believe in climate change or what's causing it, the fact of the matter is, is we have this threat. We have national disasters that are affecting our installations. We have events overseas that are causing instability in these regions. And those are the things that we address. And we try to stay far away from the political debate. Of it. Mm-hmm. And so, so hopefully, right, you, you, you're, you're suggesting that you can make strategy, uh, uh, on the basis of uh, of concrete problems, so you say I don't, I can't tell you why there's a drought that's forcing people to flee or forcing a civil war in this area, but we need to respond to that. Is that fair? Yes, that's correct. That's very correct. We we evaluate all our potential threats and the impact to mission readiness, and those threats, be it associated with climate change or whatever it could be. They're still there. Gotcha. And that's what we're um, what we're responding to. All right. Well, this is good. And once again, then to move to you, Jeff, right, on the issue of politics, the issue of things that are outside of, uh, you know, if if there ever was a you know, pure realm of strategy, right? Certainly, um, it's you move out of that very quickly when you've got to get down to the fact that there are only so many dollars to spend on things. And um, should the military, when you're dealing with readiness and modernization, or how should the military? I should ask this. How should the military uh, adapt strategy to resources, right? Do you find out how much you have to spend and decide then that's what you're going to, that's all you can do? Or do you decide what you absolutely want to do and then reallocate resources based on that? Yeah, I I think it's a mixture of both. Um, We we obviously receive our Mm -hmm. strategy uh, guidance from the various documents, national security strategy, national defense strategy, previous year's budgets what we expect the next year's budget to be. And, and then it starts with prioritization. You know, we, we look at, we look at, okay, these are what we're being told to do at the service level or the joint joint uh, service level uh, at the DOD level. We're being told this is what you must do. And then, and then we have our priorities within the service to help a- achieve those objectives. And so we, the senior leaders have the, the difficult challenge of, of prioritizing and then weighing the risk of what they can and can't fund or what they have to perhaps defer funding on mm-hmm. uh, based on the limitations of the budget they were given. And so it's, it's, it's a matter of both. It's a balancing act of 
here's what I here's what I know I'm being told to do and, and what we're being asked to do and what, what would be nice to do. And then here's the prioritization of those efforts. And now here's the programs associated with the, that priority list. And here's the risk of not doing whatever X, Y, and Z our senior leaders have asked us to, to, let, to look at funding. Uh, so it, there is a, there's a balancing act with the, the, the finite resources, whether you put a B, an M, a T at the end of those numbers, it's still finite. And, and, right. and balancing what we're being told to do. So then our, our job as senior leaders or advisors to senior leaders is to go back to congressional leaders, executive level leaders, and say, here's what you told me to do, but here's what I can't do. Or here's what the risk is if I do this and not do that. And so that's the balance we game, the game we play mm-hmm. um, in the Army staff, at the Joint Staff, in that defense management process um, as the budget's being built uh, and, and sent up to, to the president and then on to Congress as they make their revisions. Great. Thank you, Jeff. Well, now I have a question for the three of you. You know, one of the fun things about organizing the Eisenhower program, right? uh, Colonel Perkowski, who is uh, the the master behind the the uh, the master brain behind the whole Eisenhower program, is figuring out you know, how to how to group you together for these kinds of presentations. And what I find interesting about the three of you together is this idea that you're talking about, uh, uh, let's say, problems of strategy, problems of national security that require uh, require military people to think outside of purely military uh, categories. Got to think about technology, got to think about the climate, got to think about the budget. And I'm curious, uh, and I'm going to ask each of you in turn to answer this, I'll start with you, Nick, is when you have talked about your topic or things related to your topic with your colleagues at the War College, how do they respond to the idea of having to consider ideas that are uh, from different dimensions of strategy, right? Are they resistant to it? Do they push back against it? Do they say that's too theoretical and that doesn't tell me how to take this hill? What do you think? Start with you, Nick. I don't think there's been a lot of hesitancy or pushback. Mm -hmm. I think it tends to be a lot more discussion based on our backgrounds on what we see as a priority. Mm -hmm. And so the differences aren't necessarily this idea that we don't think outside the box. It just tends to be based on our experiences and what we believe is the greatest priority. And also thinking about maybe timelines. Mm-hmm. I think some of us think longer timelines, midterm and then short term. This kind of is where I think the debate tends to be here at the War College. I think everybody here realizes everything that uh, Jeff just mm-hmm. said, right? There's limited resources that have to be prioritized across a wealth of different challenges. It's just which one is the number one priority. And then we all agree it's a grouping of a bunch of different priorities, but then we disagree probably on how much of a resource each one should be receiving, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I tend to think that's what I've had the most debate about. So I tend to be a little bit more on the modernization side. I think that's where the future is going to go. Um, you know, I think Rena is, is pushing a little bit more on that climate change, but I think they also come together and that technology could inform uh, decisions, you know, on the, on the challenges with climate change. And, you know, that's where you're probably going to get some value added uh, from the debates with our with our colleagues. Sure. Nick, do you find that pilots are especially interested slash concerned about the future of autonomous weapons? <laughs> I think I think it's it's twofold. I think you probably have two different things. I think pilots love technology mm-hmm. and are always interested in the newest gadget, typically as a group, stereotypically. Right. Um, I would also tell you that I think pilots tend to be a little bit 
grasping onto some of the past, mm -hmm. right? We want to be uh, reaching towards the sky. We want to be in a cockpit. So you'll also see some pilots saying how a machine will never be able to replace them, although you may be seeing that as a possibility in the near future. So it's a weird dichotomy between both a, a welcoming of technology, which makes your life so much easier and better and, and faster um, and safer, mm -hmm. and then also this concern that it may drastically change what the future holds for you as a pilot and whether that's even a possibility or a need in the future. Right. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. So, Rena, I want to turn to you, right? When when you have talked about the climate change with fellow officers, right? What What is the typical response? Is it, you know, this is a problem that's outside of our our ken? Or do people resist it? Do they say, you know, I want to talk about other things? How do you, how and how do you deal with the responses that you get within the military community? So it's, it's funny you should ask that question because not long ago, I was actually having a little sit down lunch with some colleagues and we were talking about climate change, NASA security nexus, and they were having a hard time unwrapping how NASA security could be related to climate change. And it's just based on how national security threats have traditionally been defined and how that definition is expanding. So usually, traditionally, they were thinking like, hey, national security, the Constitution says protect, defend. We're always talking about fighting against an adversary. And it's been traditionally very narrowly defined what um, national security means. So when I'm talking to them about that, that nexus, uh, there was a little bit of resistance. But as I kind of went in and discussed about the, the various impacts and how it all interrelates and connects and how pretty much things have just expanding and changing and we have to look at climate change and national security and those non-military dimensions of protecting our interests, people start to come along a lot more easily and, and better. And, and it's just that understanding of what can constitute protecting our national interests is very broad. That is very true, Rena. Thanks for that. Now, Jeff, I want to turn to you because I think, as you know, anytime anybody talks about the budget, people get a little nervous or they take the position that if we say we need this money, we're going to get it, but we really can't be too specific about our concerns about how much money we need. Uh, because there's always a fear that if you don't ask for enough, right, you're not going to get more. So how do you talk about the budget as a strategic consideration? Uh, in seminar, for example, uh, in defense management course, people talk about how the process works. But how in the seminar uh, with your colleagues, when you talk about budgeting as a strategic consideration, how do you work these into the conversation um, in a way that, that shows how important they are and gets people thinking about things they'd rather not think about? Yeah, and it's a very interesting conversation to have at the War College um, because, as Nick said, it's a lot about, about background. So if you haven't spent time working on a budget cycle, the POM or the Program Objective Memorandum or, you know, in maybe G3 working force management issues, a lot of this stuff is new when you go to the course in, in the War College. Uh, I was fortunate to have a glimpse of it for two years. Uh, so going into that course, it was a great conversation to have because a lot of my peers and contemporary colleagues you know, as I did, uh, focus much on, like like we talked about, on the readiness of our formations and being able to fight and take the hill or take or achieve that objective. And for the last twenty years, if a if a commander at the the company battery or the battalion level needed something, they were resourced. 
uh, whether it was from the base budget or the overseas contingency budget, uh, there was no question about um, if the soldiers need it, they're going to get it because that was what the political and the domestic temperature, for lack of a better word, uh, was at the time. And and now we're kind of moving out of that. So resource constraint uh, constraints are a real thing, and it's something that the the Pentagon's dealing with now as we go in the next few years um, with the rising deficit and the rising you know costs of some of these modernization efforts are coming truth you know they're coming to bear uh, as we move out of research and development and into procurement or decisions on procurement and so those are real issues that we have to deal with well it's funny that after two years what i how i contextualize it i'll, I'll use uh my partner's uh topics you know rena's and nick's you know when we look at autonomous vehicles uh that, that conversation was rampant for the last two years i was in the pentagon and and we did talk about, you know, semi-autonomous, autonomous uh, vehicles and how do we integrate them into the force and when do we transition them from the legacy systems and what is that cost of getting rid of legacy systems and what is that cost of introducing the training and the other dot mil PF solutions to, to integrate that into the force. And for me, all I think about is the dollars and the programmatics and, well, which, which, what am I going to sacrifice for my programs to help autonomy, autonomous programs uh, find their way? Uh, because it is such a zero sum. And then when you look at climate change, the, the first thing I think of, um, I love Rena's perspectives, but the first thing I thought of was um, as we continue to look at changes to you know, fuel consumption and how we, how we find other green type energy sources, all I can think of was all the legacy systems that need to go from their diesel engines uh, to electric engines and, and the billions and trillions of dollars that would cost not only in the, in the equipment, but also the infrastructure at each installation. And so, you know, that, that's what I think about when we talk about programs and topics of this nature. And it's been a fun discussion to have in the last year. So I can only imagine. Anyway, we are just about out of time, but in the last couple of minutes, I wanted to ask each of you, what you're going to be doing after you successfully complete this very unusual year at the U.S. Army War College. Where are you off to after this, Jeff? Yeah, in about four weeks, the day after graduation, I fly to Korea, and I will be taking command of the 3rd Battlefield Coordination Detachment at, at Osan Air Base, uh, where I'll be responsible for integrating the land component commander's uh, scheme maneuver with the air components resourcing and planning. Okay, so you'll have plenty to do, and that's even before the uh, installation of all those charging stations for all of those electric vehicles. <laughs> Rena, how about you? Are you going back to Missouri? That's right. The show me state. I am going back to Missouri as a member of the Missouri National Guard. I will be stationed at Fort Leonard Wood and being the executive officer of the 140th Regional Training Institute. And Nick? Do you plan to get back up in the sky or what is your next assignment? No, I think they're going to let me uh, kind of fly a keyboard for a little bit longer. I'm headed to Human Resources Command as the, uh, as the HRC OPMD for aviation. Well, wherever you go, we were delighted that you were able to spend your time here with us today to discuss your work on a better piece. So thank you, Colonel Jeff Munn, Lieutenant Colonel Rena Henderson Alalima, and Lieutenant Colonel Nick Plutz for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and subscribe to A Better Peace if you have not subscribed to A Better Peace already on the podcatcher of your choice. And after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast because that is how other people can find out more about us. And we are always interested in hearing from you. We are always interested in building this community for these types of conversations. So even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.